Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. Thank you so much for being here, for joining us to worship the Lord. We are continuing in our series through Galatians, the book of Galatians. If you've been here for a while, you will probably be familiar to kind of the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is Paul writing to a group of churches that are made up primarily of Gentile Christians, so non-Jewish Christians, and he is writing to them as a plea for them to return to the original gospel that he planted those churches by preaching, which is that you are justified, you are made right, you are brought into a right and good relationship with God only through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. And he had to do that because there was some false teachers that were kind of infiltrating those churches and were telling these Gentile Christians that they also had to follow the old covenant. They had to add to their faith the works of the law in order to actually belong to God. And so it's a really powerful book because Paul is emotional. He cares deeply that these people that he loves, that he sacrificed for, that he has seen and now counts as brothers and sisters come into the faith. He wants them to be protected from that teaching that is trying to draw them out of it, that's trying to get them to rely again on what they can do. So that's the general flow of the book of Galatians. And for us, most of us don't try and follow the Mosaic law. We don't try and go back into the Old Testament and say, oh, I'm going to live by the laws that I see because, frankly, there's too many of them and we're not disciplined enough to do that. So we're just like, let's just not do that. But instead, what we do as modern people is that we create laws for our lives that we then live by. And not only do we live by them, but we die by them. And so that we become, in a way, self-sufficient. Everything in our lives we see as being pretty good as long as we are obeying the law that we have for our life. And that law might be a law of freedom and permissiveness, where basically we get to do whatever we want to do. And as long as I'm able to do what I want to do, what I most want to do, express who I most truly am, then everything is going to be okay. Or the law might be a moral law, where it's as long as I think that I'm pretty much a good person, as long as I'm better than most people, as long as I do more good things than bad things, surely I'm good with God. Me and God are good at that point. It could be a law of achievement and status, a law of money, of entertainment, of fun. All these are different ways that we live by a law functionally. Even if we don't have it written out as a list of things that we're doing, functionally it's what drives our life. It's what we are living for. And so chapter 3, which is where we're picking up this letter, chapter 3 is a really important letter. It's also a, or an important chapter. It's also a very difficult chapter because Paul kind of goes into the weeds of what it means to live by the law. 
and what it means to think that you need something other than just faith in Christ. And so it's complicated and complex, and this section is no different. Some of these verses have like 380 different interpretations. I'm not joking, and that's okay. We're going to kind of step back a little bit and try to see the forest through the trees, right? We want to get the big scope of what he's talking about here so we come away with the main point, what he's really trying to communicate and not getting lost too much in the weeds. So we're going to be covering some ground. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 15, all the way to the end in uh, verse 29. You can turn there in your Bibles. The words will also be up on the screen. Let me go ahead and read this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give, give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Please pray with me. Father, we need your help. We need your help because our minds don't work like your mind does. Even as you stoop down and reveal your plan of salvation to us in human knowledge, using human instruments, Lord, we get lost, we get distracted, we get confused. And so, Lord, I ask this, that this morning your word, your word would be clear to us, that we would, we would receive from you what you have, that we would receive faith, Lord, that we would trust you, that we would respond to the call 
that you offer to us here, that we would grab hold of the promise that is offered to us in Christ and live by it and keep on living by it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to use the image here to help us make sense of this. I want to use the image that Paul himself uses to help us navigate this text because you were probably thinking, this is strange, and I don't really know what's happening. So the image is helpful because the image will communicate to us in a way that we can understand basically what he's talking about, and the image is imprisonment. It's being imprisoned. You're imprisoned. And what this text wants us to do, what Paul wants us to do, what God wants us to see in this text is that we are to follow the judge out of jail. Follow the judge out of jail. I interviewed once at a jail. I worked in a jail for a little bit of time. And my interview ended by actually going into the jail and getting a tour of the jail. And so I thought that was strange. Never had a job interview quite like that. And we were going on, the interview was really, or the tour of the jail was really funny. We had some correction officers taking us through the various parts of the jail. And then we went into kind of like this cell block. We went into the cell block. So it's kind of like a dorm style. There's various cells, but then there's this big common area. And as we're walking, there's like seven or eight of us. And as we're walking through the cell block, the correction officer will kind of walk and like the clump of us would like follow very quickly. Like, don't get too close. Don't get too far away. Because it was strange. It was, it was a weird place. Like, people are locked up. That was strange for me. That was something that I wasn't too familiar with. And so, yeah, I was scared. Now, <laughs> what didn't help was during that tour, during that kind of introduction to the jail, the correction officer told us, hey, so by the way, there's a no-hostage policy at our jail. I was like, okay, that sounds like a good policy to have. Hostages in this setting, not a good thing. Don't want to be a hostage. And then he explained that. So if the prisoners take you hostage, we act like you don't exist. It's like, that's a bad policy. <laughs> don't like that policy. And so I kind of learned this this concept of being helpless, right? It was a helpless feeling. It was a strange world that I didn't understand. And then the people that I thought might be safe to kind of like help me navigate that world are basically like, yeah, we don't care that much. We're just here to do a job. I'm like, don't get captured, basically, right? That was the advice. Don't get captured. What do you do if you're captured, though? What do you do if you find yourself imprisoned. And this text has something for us, because I think we can all relate to that feeling in our lives, the feeling of being helpless, a feeling of being imprisoned, of being stuck, of being enslaved. Maybe it's to our own desires. Maybe it's to circumstances that are outside of our control. We can resonate with that. And so we're going to walk through kind of these three movements of this passage, um, and it's a logical progression that ends in this beautiful picture of what God has promised 
to his people. And the first movement is that God's promise endures. God's promise endures. The second is that God's law imprisons. God's law imprisons. And then third, God's Christ sets us free. God's Christ sets us free. So God's promise endures. This is verses 15 through 18. And it's a really simple point. We're not going to spend much time here. It's a very simple point. What Paul is trying to do is he's in conversation with the false teachers at this point. Because the false teachers are saying like, okay, so the Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham came first, and then Moses, the covenant that God made with Moses came afterwards. And so that's the one that now that we should follow. And so basically the promise that God made to Abraham was superseded by God's covenant with Moses and all of Israel. And what Paul's saying is he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, even on a human level. Because the promise was really like a testament. It was like an inheritance. God had made this promise to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. And out of you, I will make a great nation. He had made that promise to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Abraham died. And so that would be the mechanism that ratifies the covenant. Like the promise was made to Abraham. 430 years later, you can't go back and change that promise that you made to Abraham. Even on a human level, we understand that. We know that that was codified. And it would be unjust, it would be wicked to go back and then like change the rules, essentially. And so Paul's... main point here is that, no, whatever the Mosaic Covenant is, we'll get to that, it does not overwhelm, it does not supersede, it does not take over the promise. The promise remains. And then he makes this point, and this point would have been fairly offensive, because he says that the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, And he says, by offspring, God had in mind one person, Jesus of Nazareth, the one offspring of Abraham, who is going to receive the promise that was made to Abraham by God. So you see, in Jesus, Paul is saying, that promise is fulfilled. The inheritance of Abraham is given to Jesus. One offspring. And this would have been really hard to wrap their minds around. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because we don't understand and we don't, we're uncomfortable with this principle of grace and promise and freely giving. We're more comfortable with earning. We're more comfortable with having some control. And so what was happening throughout this whole time period is you have these offspring of Abraham, multiple, who are trying to grab control. They're trying to earn their reward. They're trying to bring it about in their own strength. And what happens is that the offspring start to look pretty raggedy. Like, who? The promises that 
you people are going to be God's people, and you look nothing like God's people. You can just go down the line. It's rebellion. It's sin. But it's also pride. It's self-righteousness. And so there's this progression of the offspring of Abraham where it's like, well, none of these people deserve this. Or maybe worse, they think that they deserve it. And they think that other people don't deserve it. And so they took the law and they turned it into the mechanism that would help them earn the promise. They said, we can do this. We can do this. God gave us the law. We can become righteous through it. We can fulfill it. We can do this. And so they had been operating in the law, in that covenant, in a way that worked completely against the grain of what it was meant to do. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand, no, the promise stands, and it, the inheritance came to Jesus. So that's, that's the first movement here. Verse 19, and you might be asking this question too. I've, asked, I've thought about this many times. Okay, if the inheritance comes by promise, why then the law? Glad you asked. Verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And so what you see in this section, the section of 19 through 24, call it, and it kind of has a transition between 24 and 25, but right around there, you see this idea that the law was given to imprison everything. What a strange idea. What a strange idea that kind of works against how we naturally think of God as a liberator, God as redeemer. And so when we hear that God gave the law to imprison, it should kind of like stop us in our tracks. Say like, Paul, what on earth are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why would God want to imprison all things in sin? Why would he want to do that? And the answer to this question is that sin had entered the world and had caused a sickness that there, we kind of understood, people kind of understood that there was a break in the relationship with God. They knew that Adam had been removed from the garden and that they were wandering out of the garden. But at the same time, it was kind of detached. It was like, oh, maybe, maybe like I'm okay. Maybe I, if I, I can obey God like Abraham did, and then I'll be good. Like that, that's kind of would be a logical thing to think. And so the full ramifications, the full consequences of sin, of death entering to sin, and of spiritual death being the principle by which all people, all things related to God it hadn't been fully revealed. And so the law, the purpose of the law, is to fully reveal just how bad things are. Just how much the people 
were not God's people. Just how much those people did not see God as their God because they didn't love him and honor him in the first four commandments. And they didn't love other people in the second, in the next six commandments. They weren't obeying the law in multitudes of ways. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, even one imperfection in your ability to keep the law, it taints everything. It brings the full curse into play because it reveals an impurity, an imperfection in your love. And God wants perfection because he is perfect. And so the law comes and is given to outline, to diagnose the disease, basically. So that's the purpose of the law. It's to diagnose. It's a diagnostic tool. It's God telling the people, here is what's wrong with you. Here's what's wrong with you. You can't be my people because of sin. You can't love me because of sin. You can't love other people because of sin. Not in the way that I designed you as your creator, as your maker. And so the law imprisons. It imprisons all of us. Universally, it imprisons us. And I think there are two main ways that we feel imprisoned. The first is despair, because we realize just how bad we are. Without the law, without kind of like that standard, without something to go by, you could kind of like go through your life and start, and this is how we do it. We start comparing ourselves to other people. Like, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Doing okay. Pretty good. You can think that you're okay. It would be like being terminally ill and yet not yet having a diagnosis. You, you might think that you're pretty healthy. Maybe there's like a twinge of pain here or something that kind of maybe makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable there. But you think, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. And so the law reveals just how far we are from the standard. Just how far we have fallen in Adam through his rebellion, through his sin. How we continue to participate in those sins in many myriads of ways. And so a lot of us, when we hear the law, when we hear the expectations of a perfect and holy God, we feel despair. But the law also imprisons us in pride. And this is primarily what Paul is concerned with here. He's also concerned with despair, but he's primarily concerned with how the law imprisons us in our pride. Because this is, this is what happened to the Israelites. They grew proud as recipients of the law, as recipients of the covenant. They started to think that they were better than other people. And even rejecting Jesus, rejecting the lawgiver, they showed that ultimately they were relying on themselves. They thought 
They were deceived into thinking that they would be able to make things right with God and what they could do, how they could fulfill the law. And so, as Paul is writing to this church, he's writing to a group of Christians who had been in despair, right? That would have been the feeling that most Gentiles, most non-Jewish people would have felt when they were brought for the first time into confrontation with the holy God of Israel, the holy one of Israel, through the law. God revealing his law to them. They would have been in despair because the distance between them was so great. And then Paul comes in and he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the wonderful truth that if you trust in Christ, God's son, sent by God to die for your sin, to fill that distance between you and God, you are brought in to the household. You become a child of the faith. They had believed that. And now, all of a sudden, they're being taught that, hey, that's not quite enough. Come into this prison over here, this prison of pride, of self-righteousness, of achievement. You need more. And so what Paul is saying is that he's saying that God actually worked redemptively through the law to stir and provoke the pride of the human heart. Because that's one of the things that we are supposed to do today. As we read the word, as we allow the word to search us, we should feel the conviction of our pride. We should feel the ways that we have imitated this pattern of wanting to be self-sufficient. When we look at our lives, when we consider for a minute just how much we actually don't think that Jesus is enough. How what we pursue, what we put our hope in, what we spend time moving towards shows us that we think we are sufficient. That we think that we can redeem ourselves to set ourselves free. And so the law, that's the use, that's the purpose of the law, right? It's to make us feel imprisoned, even in our despair, in our inability to keep the law, or in our pride, in our efforts that we have lived by our own law, totally apart from God, rejecting what he gives us, and we feel imprisoned. And I remember what it feels like to feel imprisoned. Because as I was working at the jail, I don't know how many months had gone by, some amount of time had gone by, and I was working as a counselor. So I would go into the jail, and we would offer classes and group, group counseling sessions. And so we would actually go into the cell blocks to do the counseling. And so how it usually would work is that the correction officer would let us in and then they would kind of like prop the door open and stand right there by the door um, and we would do counseling, come back out, no problems, worked fine, great. They got comfortable with us at some point, the correction officers. 
And so, like anything, you kind of like filter out things that you're comfortable with or that you're used to. And so they started kind of reverting back to old behavior that they would do. And one of those behaviors was to shut the door, lock it, and then go somewhere. And so I remember I was doing a class, and me and a colleague were in there doing a class, and there was probably about 30-some inmates in there who, you know, I had relationship with. Like, I wasn't terrified, but it was nice to have the door open. And I heard behind me, click, the door shut, the lock engage, and I was imprisoned. And now, it wasn't as scary as I would have imagined it because I had made relationships and I knew them as people. And those relationships would basically keep me safe for a time. But what I needed, what I was utterly and completely dependent on, was at some point someone unlocking that door. I was in jail. I had no control over when that door opened. And that's what it feels like to be imprisoned. When you're imprisoned by your despair, you are completely helpless. And so when you hear the perfect and good commands of God, you throw yourself down. And you say, God, I cannot keep these. I am in complete and perfect deserving of all of the punishments because they're too much for me. Or you're in despair at your pride because you've kept the law to the best of your ability and it's turned you into just a miserable person who sits in judgment over other people. And it has happened throughout the years that you've actually seen yourself growing farther away from God the more you depended on yourself to keep the law. And pretty soon, you read the Bible and just bounces off like, it's, like your mind is concrete, like your heart has no desire, no thirst, no need for God. You're imprisoned. But God's Christ sets us free. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The incarnation, the birth of Christ, the offspring of of Abraham, heir to the promise, was born into human history, and that door popped open. He unlocked the door. He became the one person who fulfilled the law, who took on all of the requirements of the law and fulfilled them in perfect righteousness. Right? This would be like somebody coming in and unlocking the door and opening it up. But Jesus didn't just live a perfect life. 
he stepped in, turned around, and he pulled the door shut behind him. Click. This is the offense of the cross. Peter was just in knots over this. He couldn't figure it out. He was either saying, Lord, you are the Christ. Where else can, can I go? But then when Jesus went to wash his feet, Peter was like, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter says, not my feet only, Lord, all of me. And then in Jesus talking about the one disciple who betrayed him, Peter says, tell us, Lord, who this is. I will never betray you. I will go with you even to death. And Jesus says, yeah, you'll deny me three times before this day is done. And the final of those denials is going to be a little girl who you are so done with me with that you're even willing to lie to her to deny me. And then finally, when they come to take Jesus, one of the last of Peter's, after he's failed multiple times, falling asleep when Jesus is asking him, this is the last of his failures, that for, the, for now anyways, he takes his sword, slices off the ear. And Jesus is like, he's got to put the ear back on first. <laughs> and he says, no, Peter, this is why I came. I came to shut this door. I came to put the curse of the law on my back and take it to the cross. For once and for all, to set the captives free. To fulfill the law and to defeat the power of sin, which is death. And so Jesus gave himself to his people. He gave himself as the one faithful offspring. He gave himself to a bunch of prisoners, enslaved in despair and pride. And he fulfilled the promise that said, I will make a great nation out of you. I will bless your offspring. And through him, bless the nations. And so you see the law being fulfilled on the cross and our freedom being given to us in Christ. Because that as Jesus closed that door behind him, metaphorically speaking, he reveals to us, I am not only the offspring, I am the heir. I have been given all authority by the Father. I am the judge, and I have the key. I'm in here to get us out, to open the door and set us all free. So when you trust in that, when you trust in the one who has opened up the doors of the prison, 
when you put your faith in him and not what you can do, you realize that your debt is fully paid, that the list of the requirements of the law is done away with, that the bill that was itemized to show the extent to which you could not pay it is paid in full. But that's not all. As good as that is, as wonderful as that is, our freedom, we're free. It doesn't stop there, friends. And this is really where we're going to go the next couple weeks, but he just kind of introduces the concept to us here. He says, not only are you in Christ set free from the law, but just as you were baptized into him, united to his death and resurrection, you have put on Christ. You have become the offspring. And if you are the offspring of Abraham, you are the heir to who all the promises belong. The inheritance belongs to you. You are a child of God. You are the judge's son or daughter. And you get to live in amazing bliss eternally. This is the benefit of God's promise. This is what we call a covenant. It's the language of a covenant. It's God's promise to people. And what a covenant does is it creates a family. It creates a bond that is forged in blood unbreakable. And it is pictured in human terms in a marriage. And we've seen that happen in this, where we received Jesus's fulfillment of the law. We received his righteousness, and he received our curse. This interchange has happened. And this is vast, so I want to overwhelm you (laughs) um, for a minute because this should overwhelm us. This should be something that is so wonderful, so attractive, so worth pursuing that we never want to go back into those prisons. We never want to, for a second, imagine that we can fulfill God's law apart from Christ. And so I want to read an old quote, this is from Francis Turretin, that talks about what happens when God gives himself to us. And I just kind of want you to be overwhelmed by it. There might be one or two things that stand out to you. Grab onto them. Hold on to them. Let the promise comfort you. God so gives himself to us to be ours that all he is all that works to our advantage in salvation becomes ours. Ours is the wisdom of God for direction, the power of God for protection, the mercy of God for the remission of sins, the grace of God for sanctification and consolation, the justice of God for the punishment of enemies, the faithfulness of God for the execution of promises, the sufficiency of God to bring us all manner of happiness. And as sin, 
brought innumerable evils upon us, we find a cure for it all in the divine properties that we receive. Wisdom heals our ignorance and blindness. Grace, our guilt. Power, our weakness. Mercy, our misery. Goodness, our wickedness. Justice, our iniquity. The sufficiency and fullness of God, our poverty and need. Faithfulness, our fickleness. Holiness, our impurity. And life, our death. God has given himself to us, friends. That is the promise of Abraham. That is the promise of the gospel. And after he gives himself to us, there's nothing more for us to receive. There's no earning. There's only enjoyment. There's only living by faith continually in this life that, yes, his life and death was for me. So I can live this life. I can approach death. I can walk to the death, to the doorstep of death and know that the resurrection is mine because Jesus is mine. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for these promises. Lord, we can call on you as our Father because of your Son. Because as we trust in him, we are so united to him that even our biology becomes inconsequential. Because the bond that we have in him is so much greater. It holds us so much closer. And so, Lord, all of us, every part of us belongs to you. And every part of you belongs to us, Lord. I ask that you would help us to remember that, to recall that, to bring it to mind in our pain, to bring it to mind in our doubt, to bring it to mind in our sin, that we would not go back into those prison cells, but that we would walk freely, joyfully, as your people, your children. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.